Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin by first thanking Gary S., Omega Art and Music, Connie S., and Vipal P. for making donations to help offset the expenses here in the salon. And they all did so through purchasing a copy of my Pay What You Can audiobook, my novel The Genesis Generation. And I also want to thank our fellow saloners who have been posting very kind comments about that book. You're giving me the encouragement to continue working on the next volume of the series, which uh, I hope to have completed by the end of this year. Now today, uh, as you already know, we'll be hearing part two of Bruce Damer's great crescendo interview with filmmaker Matt Anderson for the documentary film series that he's directing titled Fall and Winter. And uh, you can see the trailer of that, by the way, at fallwintermovie, all one word, fallwintermovie.com. Now, in the early part of this interview, as uh, Bruce describes his view of uh, one way the leaders of governments and corporations could uh, maybe be better qualified before becoming eligible to fill their elected positions or appointed positions, well, he really swept me away with the uh, very real possibility that a more closely utopian society such as that could uh, really be feasible if only enough humans get fed up with the status quo and do the hard work of actually creating such a civilization. I guess uh, that I could have shortened that little speech to simply say the headline, Bruce's vision gives me hope. So uh, now let's find out what you think about it, and uh, here is Bruce Damer. It, what it comes down to in most societies, especially you know the United States, is there's just a few individuals who create the problems. Um, a, politic, a politician that is a problem, a business person that is a problem, a financial instruments manipulator that is a problem. It comes down to a handful. And I would, I would say it's no more than 500 people in the United States cause uh, a vast amount of the grief and the failures of... It's, there's probably a set of lobbyists on E Street in Washington that are the, the cause of the failure of, of the legislative agenda. There's some lawyers. There's certainly the politicians. There's, you know, in many countries, it may come down to a handful of people. So human civilization has to get a handle on this and say, we need adult supervision. We need elders. We need oversight. We need screening. Because these people get into these positions, often they're sociopathic or psychopathic by the measures that, that you can you can give. George W. Bush, perfect example. You know, on the surface, he was a charismatic guy. He motivated people. He was extremely good to meet in person. I never have, but I've seen his, his speeches, and I can see why people became really attached to this guy. But he's a recovering alcoholic. Now, all my friends in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, when they saw that W. had been elected president, they, they, they basically cringed and said, oh, no, you know, W would never have been able to be screened to become a pilot, for example. He just couldn't pass that psych test because as a fairly severe recovering alcoholic, he enters into what's called a belief box. And the belief box, if you're in recovery, is that safe space that if something comes in and disturbs you, you're going to go back on the bottle. So you deny information. You deny truths that come in. And this characterized the presidency. You know, the, and how many people died? Hundreds of thousands of people died, millions displaced because this guy was in this position. And he was able to work with another group of people in a, in a cycle of hubris that led to massive destruction and rode the U.S. economy down with the destruction of financial institutions and laws and protections of citizens' rights. So, why on earth would we not screen uh, our leaders? Why on earth do we not do this? And when we see there is a problem that's developing, we remove them. There should be a, a council. There's a council of people who are above reproach, 
like the old village elders, who look out and they say, okay, this person is a problem. There's something going wrong. We will explain the, the, the truth of this. We're, the, we're, we're truth seekers and truth tellers. And the institutions can act on this. So if you have a problem president, they don't stay for four years. The, the problems are identified. The, the poor strategy is identified. And I, can, I had personal experience with this because in January 2003, I was part of a Pentagon-sponsored workshop in Virginia on the Iraq War. And it was partially on the Iraq War and partially on how to move the United States off of petroleum dependency, which was considered, you know, certainly wrapped up in this Iraq operation. And we talked for a day about what is the justification for this. And our sponsor of our workshop was a major Pentagon thinker, had been there for 35 years, and counseled the Joint Chiefs against this. So why is it that this person who was our sponsor of our workshop, who had been through Vietnam, was one of the most respected brains in the Pentagon, why isn't he setting the policy? He should be setting the policy. So he should be brought in and say, all right, you have to give a pass-fail grade on this strategy, and if you say, no, this is going to be damaging for these reasons, it doesn't happen. And the politicians either can accept that or they're out of office. We need... We need elder adult supervision in our civilization. We also need to make sure we don't traumatize our children early on, that they're healthy. You know, one of the great things about some of the countries in the world that prioritize early childhood, I mean, in Scandinavia, they're prioritizing the health of the child in the womb and, and long maternity leaves, counseling and on nutrition because they want the healthiest possible baby to be born and then the best education for that child. That should be the priority, period. And no exposure to uh, religions that produce fear, guilt, and all those the effects. Uh, exposure to good moral codes, but not necessarily religious codes, if religions are deemed you know, too risky because of their, past, their past record is not good. Um, many, many religions or many ways of teaching religion. So... In the post, in the post crescendo period, if we are in the emerald and blue, you know, the emerald and azure civilization, we will have gotten all this right. And to run for public office or to seek to operate a corporation, and if we still have militaries, which we really don't have need for or shouldn't, anybody, it should be like you're an airline pilot. You are, you are screened and screened and screened because there are going to be passengers and in the lifetime of your career, you're going to be responsible for hundreds of thousands of individuals that are back in the seats behind you that you are getting safely to their destinations. And society says, you know, if you put your hand up and say, I'm going to run for president or I'm, I'm seeking the CEO-ship of this corporation, then the entire mechanism goes into place. And it may be that that you have gone to special schools that train you to do that, and that you come pretty stamped and pre-approved. And there would be elders and people who've known you your entire life that say, I believe that they're ready. But you would also go through a test period. You may go through training for this. You may go through where you are elected to that post, but it's only on a, an interim basis for a year. And then you're evaluated, and you may not have made the grade, because the most important thing is to get the best leadership. If we do this, we have a secure future in our civilization. Yeah, but it, it seems like we're part of perhaps part of that emerald civilization is not to have the one leader, to not have the one charismatic Stalin or mm-hmm. Bush or whatever. <clears throat> yeah, but to have uh, a, the, the you know dispersed and and just like you were talking about the the guy who was hired by NASA to develop a robot to land on the moon. He said, well, why not make a hundred little ones? Mm. And because the ones that don't make it, you know, there's, it's a diffused damage or, you know, and a, and a better success. But in some cases you need, you need a, like human civilization, you can look back and you can say, there were cases in which the merchants in the Agora uh, managed to create a marketplace. And serving their own interests, they were doing quite well. But there were cases also where there was a major threat to that civilization and you needed the charismatic leader that could cross all bounds and, and, and unite. 
and that wasn't connected with the interests of the merchants who were bringing down civilization, perhaps. So human civilization does occasionally have need for these individuals, but they are there to be so carefully chosen. Now, of course, Alexander the Great, would he have ever been gone through the screening process? We may end up with very dull charismatic leaders, you know, but I think it, it's better. Um, you can have, a, you can have an, a, the rare time where you have an individual who is a brilliant manager of affairs. It also is a motivator. I mean, you think perhaps in this country it might have been uh, uh, Roosevelt in the 1930s. You know, perhaps because of his disability, he relied upon others. And so he built this team that, that built all these institutions in the 1930s from, you know, Medicare to, uh, you know, industrial partnerships with, with the government to building highways and all this other stuff. But he was also a brilliant and charismatic leader that could cut across all the boundaries. And they were trying to get him throughout the 1930s. I mean, Supreme Court challenges, this and that, they were, they were trying to get him. And then he ended up, he was so adept that he led the U.S. in through World War II, most of it. I mean, this is an amazing history of an amazing individual. And so, if you can, if you can get in, in terms of Rome, in ancient Rome, I think it was Claudius. Uh, Augustus was also a great leader, and Claudius, who was the, the, the kind of village idiot of the palace who was put into power by the Praetorian Guard uh, on a whim because everyone else was dead. They, they all killed themselves off, and here he was. And he was always in the, had been in the shadows, but he was actually a brilliant mind. He had a lisp, everything, but he led Rome, and he built the port at Ostia, and he, did, he had good governance. And he wasn't very charismatic, but he led Rome, and he... Each one of these these brilliant leaders overcame and repaired the damage of the previous Caesars. And so you always had this back and forth going on, but ultimately Rome fell because of this succession problem, and they had a series of incredibly poor, incredibly destructive leaders, and then the whole civilization crashed. So in some sense, you, you, you need them. You can't live without them, but they can really do you in if they're the wrong people, especially a sequence of the wrong people. Right. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Interesting. I <clears throat> I mean, I have a million directions I would love to go and stuff. I'm trying to sort of uh, prioritize to not wait, not, not keep you all day. I'm, um, I'm, I'm here for you all day. So. Okay. <laughs> awesome. okay. Well, I, one thing that occurs to me is, uh, or one thing I'd like to, to talk about a bit is the, is, um, well, Let's start with with the singularity mm. I, I concept, and, and maybe what are sort of alternatives or parallels to that same vision. Maybe define what that vision is from your perspective, or what it's at root about, and mm -hmm. some of the other. Well, the, the the singularity, from what I understand, came from Werner Vinge. The idea that um, that somehow some blend of all the world's tweets and databases and technology and people in them uh, create this collective being that wakes up. Or that technology goes so quickly and that we become cyborgs with subcutaneous chips and and we get morphed so rapidly that, that we become one with the machine or something like that. It seems to be, it's a bit of a, an apocalypse, it's a bit of a, you know, a science fiction idea of the turning on of consciousness of everything, which is kind of a cool idea. Um, but it flies in the face of how technology is actually built, which is piece upon piece of, of legacy stacked up and trying to... to and and the, the Internet is one gigantic piece of handwork. It's a piece of constant maintenance to keep it going. There, there's nothing intelligent and autonomous and self-healing about the Internet or about, you know, you know your, your latest cell phone. It's a huge labor of human caring and the upgrades to your smartphone are worked on and there's still problems. It's it's a big handwork thing. Nothing's autonomous. So the, the singularity idea is, is nonsense. It's complete. It's it's a science fiction idea. It came from science fiction. It is science fiction. The crescendo idea is different. It's saying that in this time where we feel a quickening or an intensifying of, of everything, it isn't going to one point. It's that all the voices are singing at once. They're all 
experience. We're all experiencing more and more extreme states of consciousness, of extreme sports, of extreme tech, of extreme saturation with media, of extreme job changes, body changes, you know, just information. Terence McKenna called it novelty. Just more and more and more of it. And more voices coming out. And this is glorious. This is a glorious period if you can get through it. You know, if you can not burn out on it, which which is a danger. And it crescendo involves everyone. The, the singularity seems to be this this nerd idea of of reaching some kind of omega point, reaching some kind of it's it's very much the Christian idea of the you know of, of the, uh, the the second coming, um, apocalyptic, etc., etc. So it's a bit of a downer because everything comes to an end. But it's incredibly unlikely. And in fact, there's no... In the Singularity Movement, and I do talks every year at the Singularity University. I've done two, three years in a row now. And I come in with the contrarian view. And what I point out is, if this is the belief, who is working on this problem? And who can show... Certainly Ray Kurzweil can't show. How do you get from Microsoft Office installed on your computer to an intelligence <laughs> that is talking to you and to which you are uploading your all, every memory and desire. Microsoft Office ain't going to get you there. Microsoft isn't building this. And Office in the year 2029 is just going to be bigger, <laughs> you know, load slower, <laughs> and cost, you know, cost about as much and take up, you know, a hundred times the disk space. That's office will still be office. You know, it may be three D in front of your head in augmented reality, but you'll be, you know, still writing letters. And so, who is making this thing happen? Nobody is the answer. It's a it's a complete idea drawn from from the air that appeals to a certain, as we said in a certain religion. It's a, it's like a religious idea almost. It it sounds cool to people, so that they're into it. But so does. Trek sound cool and you go to the con and you live in the world of Star Trek. It's living in the world of the singularity is living in one of these science fictiony fantasy worlds. And then everything is colored by that. So you live in a Star Wars world. You live in the world of, of a religious group, the world of Scientology. For a while it's very cool and reassuring and stimulating and comes with social interactions and groups. But after a while the whole, you know, the the tears are showing through and there's there's sky showing through the structure. So the crescendo is, is an alternative. It's saying celebrate all voices, all approaches, all inventions, all fanat- fanaticism. Come at this thing as an anthropologist and look down, look down from your spacecraft and look at all the crazy extremes that are going on and say, this is astounding that, that the biosphere after four billion years of evolution has produced this. This thing is so complex and so colorful and so crazy, and it may not return. This may be a unique time. Study it and and be amazed. And when when you accept everything equally, when you accept the viewpoint of the Islamic extremist, when you and you get into their shoes and you see the world from how they do, watch the videos they watch on YouTube. Get enraged. And you step into the world of the, the right-wing fundamentalists in the U.S., you'll find a very similar kind of person, watching very similar kinds of things, getting the same kind of angst and anger. Experience what they do. Em- be completely empathic with them. Then step into the world of, of the person building you know, a kite that can generate electricity at high altitude and their excitement, their vision for the future. Step into all these shoes, all these shoes to... Uh, saturate and absorb yourself with all the voices, then you'll understand where it is going and you'll understand how to explain things to all those people. Because if you have, like Spock, if you've done a mind meld and you've, you've, you've internalized the state of all these different people and all these voices, you will be wise and you will be able to guide. And, and that's what it comes down to. It's good advice. It's beautiful. It's nice. <laughs> um, great. Well, I guess you also have to accept the singularity singularity view then, too. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And it's cool. It is. Yeah, it's it is cool. cool. And you go in there, and 
Now, of course, in the Singularity University, they're not really teaching anything to do with the singularity, and Ray is not around. Right, right. It's just everyone talking about the stuff they're working on. So and I, at the beginning when they were setting it up, I said, don't call it Singularity University. It'll be tarred and feathered with this crackpot thing. And I tried, to, I, I sent emails and tried to convince and said, anything, call it, you know, you know, nonalarity or unularity, anything, just don't call it, don't call it that. Uh, yeah. Because, it, you know, there's a certain attraction to it, but then it will always be, you know, thought of as, as this crackpot thing. And poor Ray, I mean, Ray now has this following of people that are just after him. Because he's brought it on himself. I mean, he's not a scientist. He's not an objective thinker. He just comes up with these notions. And he got savagely taken down at Stanford about three or four years ago on, on his sort of curves going and you know, all, all this stuff. He was invited to present at Stanford. And he got just cut apart. And he switched to life extension work. And what the, the sign, and, and this is also important if we, we look at the people who influence society. So, you know, he's won the National Medals of Honor and everything for his work, but if you see people who get into this mode, there's a there's a fellow who was promoting the idea of a face on Mars for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, and I remember, I, I had an involvement with this because he called me at one point wanting to speak at our contact conference. It was called Contact, and it was Serious planetary scientists, anthropologists, looking at the ideas if you did contact an extraterrestrial civilization with a signal or something, what would you do? And the, these people have been meeting for 25 years looking at this. Really cool group of people. You know, science fiction writers come to the meeting. Really, really cool. He wanted to present at it. And I said, one, I can't give you permission because Jim Finero runs this meeting and you have to call him. I, I doubt if you're going to be able to present because you're making claims that frankly don't aren't substantiated by anything you know just by your imagination mm -hmm. and he was pretty miffed about that and then I was on the phone to Art Bell because Art we were getting ready to do a show on avatars because I'd written the book avatars and Art wanted to do and he said get your coffee pot going because this is all night coast to coast and we were getting ready to do the show maybe in the next day or so. And then Art, unfortunately for me, he pops up a, a web site. And it's one of the earlier Mars orbiting craft that NASA had deployed, you know, to, to do more planetary surface exploration. And they had taken a shot of this rock outcropping that Hoagland was, you know, the face on Mars. So Art said, I got to go, I got to go because, you know, the face on Mars scam has broken. And now I've got to take take this down. And I said, Art, you get him going up and down. <laughs> he said, Yep, I get him going. I build them up, and when they come down, I get them coming down. I said, Does that bother you sometimes? He said, Well, sometimes. And then we hung up the phone. Now the interesting thing was for Art, and this is a good example of influence in in, in our civilization. So shortly after that the Heaven's Gate thing happened. And if you know, you remember, it was someone who came on Art Bell's show that claimed that they saw that there is a spacecraft going along next to a comet that's coming toward the Earth and big things are going to happen. And these people, these 39 people in a house in San Diego took the Kool-Aid and they, were, they committed suicide because of some crazy leader. It was like a Jonestown massacre, but in suburban San Diego. Now, it shook Art Bell so much that he brought this guy back on. He was so shook up. And the guy said, well, I just made it all up. You know? And Art just bit into him. He, sa he savaged this guy on the air. And, you know, here's a good one. So I'm your age, 23, 24, 25. I, like you, wondered, um, is there a conspiracy running the world? Could there be? And I had my golden opportunity when I was about 24 years old. I was in Los Angeles in graduate school, and I hung out with this guy that was in the neighborhood I played chess with, who was an international financier. And he'd worked with, um, uh, oh boy, I can't remember. He'd, he'd worked with Onassis. He'd worked with Onassis on his ship. And this is the, the fellow who married uh, 
Jacqueline Kennedy, and he was a global financier, and he was a real character. Aristotle, Aristotle Onassis. And one of the deals we were in, they were all weird deals with government military-issued debt, which had to be sold for pennies on the dollar, and it was from the government of Indonesia or the military of Indonesia. Weird stuff. Giant pearls from Iran. Dore gold bars. They're stored in warehouses that used to belong to some government, right? And these were the deals that this fellow was involved with. So one day we went out to this house in Inglewood, California, and there was this guy, this Turkish guy with his whole retinue, with his family. He was a bald guy, and his name was Kojak, of course, out of the old the character on TV. And Kojak had all these briefcases full of this stuff, which my, my mentor was looking through and trying to make deals with. And these deals are, they're as shady as you can come, right? The, but they're fun. They're fun and bizarre and strange. And I got a chance to ask Kojak, and I'd heard a, a rumor that this fellow Kojak has had a career as an assassin hired by governments to off other governments. Like, this is what you see in Hollywood, right? This, so I, I thought, this is my opportunity to ask this man uh, if there is a conspiracy, because he's he works for governments and offs other governments, right? As how much of a con- more conspiratorial can you get? And he'd worked on the government of Chile. He had helped assassinate an elected, duly elected government on behalf of our government. Things, wonderful things like this. And he said, yeah, he was sort of waxing poetic. My family's been in this business for 500 years. In Turkey, in Lebanon, we've been trading, we've been working for princes, we've been moving money, cleaning things up, knocking people off. This is our family history. And I got into it just like, my ancestors, because they get rid of the bastards <clears throat> that are running these countries. And I concluded after 20 years that, that the bastards hiring me were no better, or they could have been worse, the people coming in. I wasn't doing anyone any good. So I quit, and now I'm on the move all the time. So I deal in these instruments. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, oh, sure. I said, is there like an all-knowing, all-intelligent conspiracy that is running the planet? You know, you have to have been, if there is, they have to have been some of your clients, right? Because what you do serve their interests. He said, well, he thought, for time, time in the past, there would have been a wealthy family that had a big influence in a region. It might have been the Rothschilds, maybe in Europe, at a period of time before the war. It might have been that, that there was influence but after World War II, it all changed. After World War II, Europe was on its back. Europe was not projecting its power anymore. But America had, was coming up. But these were new people. These were naive people. And they were, they were becoming very influential, but not in the same way. And then in the 60s, it started to move to Asia. And money started to move there, manufacturing Japan. And then in the 70s, it started to move to my region, Saudi Arabia, oil money. And then we all realized that this thing is a wave. This wave is moving around the world. It can't be predicted where it goes. And you just hold on and you roll with it. And anyone who, who tries to control it is thrown off by this wave. So no, there is no conspiracy. There is not even a person or a group of people who have in their mind an idea of what's going on or a piece of the whole picture. There is not. And this was in the mid-1980s, so you can imagine. So no, not only isn't there a conspiracy, there couldn't be a conspiracy. And as Terence McKenna said, the horrible truth is there's no one in charge. So the, that's another thing for the crescendo view if no one is in charge, you can actually give up all the energy you were expending in blaming people or in being fearful of the people you think are holding the conspiracy or in expecting someone to fix things. If no one is in charge, it's like if you have the, the sudden revelation that there isn't a God that is running everything, then in fact, you know, nature is running itself you are running things, then you become responsible. 
well, if God's not, you know, looking over me, I have to become like a God. I have to become benevolent and caring and, you know, a good kind of a God. I have to actually take that role myself. And if there is no one in charge, don't act like there is anyone in charge, then you start getting really responsible. You say, my God, nobody's in charge. Or my not God. Nobody's in charge. Therefore, everything I do contributes to our riding of this wave to a good degree or not. And the crescendo is when the wave just enters into this incredibly fast undulatory pattern and so many changes are coming. And so if you come into the you know first breath of your life saying no one's in charge and yet everyone is in charge, then we're going to be able to make it through those undulations and we're going to we're going to revel in them, to tell you the truth, because the undulations of that wave in, in this more intense crescendo that we're going to come through are going to be an incredible ride, a roller coaster ride. They're going to be, we're going to learn things we could never have learned. We're going to be freed from things. You know, the crescendo will throw off all the old religions. It will throw off the conspiracy theories. It will throw off, uh, you know, crusty old corporate jobs will be gone and as they're disappearing quickly. And, and replaced will be self-sufficiency, direct communication with, with nature, with other human beings, with media, the creation of opinion directly, which is what we're already seeing. Um, all of the things that replace, that we're, because we're so flexible in our minds, we let, we let it in. We say, fine, let that, let the old crusty thing go. I'm ready for the next because I know no one's in charge. No one's going to give me direction. When the Soviet Union fell, one of the most interesting things was the journalists standing around at Pravda saying, we were always told what to report. Now we're not being told what to report. We are in a state of complete confusion. What do we do? <laughs> now, of course, you know, they had to learn that they could go out and form their own opinion and they could shape a story. And for them, at a, that moment was, this is a terrible responsibility. Now think about that. So they had given that power to the government, which told them what to do, which they, you know, that was for better or for worse what society was to be told. Now that it comes upon them for a moment, there was a moment of complete honesty saying, this is a terrible responsibility. I don't know if I'm up to it. Now, of course, most reporters going out in the world have a point of view, and of course they feel they do, but many of them perhaps don't. They, they don't understand what the full responsibility is, and those Pravda people did. They almost said, "How I, we can't do this. We can't. How can we put our own viewpoint with my paltry knowledge? How can I go and report on the garbage collection policy of the city of Moscow with any authority? You know, which people care about. You know, but I can say anything. I can say political things. Things we can say anything about the garbage collection failure of collecting garbage on the right." days and who's to blame and they never done that never blamed a city official never never done that well what if we hurt somebody you know what if we're wrong when we do the story think of that 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 crystal moment where they they were given the responsibility and this is you know the 20 plus years ago so if you are if you give yourself the responsibility for not you know, because you don't believe that anybody's in charge, you now know you know it for a fact. You give yourself a piece of responsibility. That is a life changer. There's no God. There's no. There's no um, government agency. There's no. And this, of course, happens to people in disasters. And this is why hum, humans shine in disasters. They either reach their lowest points, but and often humans absolutely shine when all that structure disappears and they just they you know they rescue people from the torrent and and help each other out that makes some of the best stories and the best best movies <laughs> totally well <clears throat> maybe we could talk about um your recent work and and what <laughs> that's taught you about about uh the nature of life and how it works, and, and especially this chemistry and, and chemistry. I mean, I mean, you don't have to necessarily get into the, the specifics, but really, like, what maybe what have you learned about reality and life? And, and uh... well, the the auspicious, the audacious project that I undertook several years ago, and 
I've been thinking about since 1985, so for almost 20, over 25 years, is how did life get started? Now, if you, if you, for a moment, put put away ideas of a creator, you know, of a watchmaker, you know, putting it together, think of this: the universe runs along quite happily with atoms and molecules and planets and oceans and stars and blowing up things and condensing things. Laws of physics are happening. And then suddenly, in some location, this thing arises that has an internal plan that says, here's my plan of what to do. But the plan is made out of the same blobs as it is made out of. It runs along the plan like a zipper and says, okay, uh... To build a wall around me, I'll do this. To to eat food, I'll make this thing which will help me eat food. And and to see, uh, I'll build this thing from this plant. What an audacious, bizarre, trippy, psychedelic thing this is. That this thing emerged on its own from molecules or machines that are just sort of there, and you get this thing. And of course... Creationists call this the, the problem of irreducible complexity, that there's no pathway. And for software nerds like me, this is the ultimate coding challenge. The code has to write itself. Now, this also helps, this is the unsingularity project, because this project would be, in a sense, the ultimate singularity project. And in fact, the, it is the only meaningful singularity project, the origin of, of life, the origin of of widgets, that if you could simulate the widgets in software and show that the widgets, without somebody mucking around, uh, ratcheted and assembled themselves into a machine that is now a lifelike thing. That's a singularity event. So if you really focus on on this, as this make this a goal, you find out how incredibly hard it is. <clears throat> so chemistry, let's go back to you know, people's eyes glaze over there are people who have built supercomputers, you know, costing millions of dollars to simulate a little cube of simulated chemical volume 100 nanometers on the side with thousands of atoms. And they are proudly announcing in this day and age that they have been able to simulate a microsecond of time for, uh, for this little simulated chemical space, and they did it in only 30 days of calculation flat out on this great big powerful machine. 30 days, we got a microsecond. So this is a very small space. This is a, this is like a little corner of a cubbyhole of a part of an E. coli uh, organism, just a tiny little space. And they simulated, you know. So you think of the, the computing, it's not really computing, but the computing nature is doing all the time, outstrips, you know, our largest supercomputing grid. You know, the grid that wins at Jeopardy and the the grid that, that you know, beats people at chess isn't up to simulating a corner of a single living, simple living cell, period. It's not up to it for any, any length of time. So nature is awesomely hard to simulate in the computer. And a single neuron in, in the human brain, to simulate it at the molecular level is just at you know, precisely and is is inconceivable right now. So those who believe one can upload consciousness to technology, you know, granted you could simulate the neuron a little bit simpler, but there's trillion, there's, you know, billions and trillions of those things in your brain. How can you have a mind that is less than what neurons do if you're trying to upload consciousness? So if we can't even do one neuron thing, how are we going to upload consciousness exactly. So I, I picked the task to work on as a research project for many years, and I started in about 2007. How can you use computers to simulate the origin of life, the pathway from the little, the simple molecules to the big machine that, that is a, what would be called a protocell? And we've run uh, two batches of simulations on something called the evolution grid or the evo grid this, in the past 12 months and shown ourselves how incredibly hard it is to do this. And we're doing only a thousand atoms in a little cube in space, and we're distributing that across lots of computers. So we simulate a thousand atoms moving around, forming molecules, forming bonds, breaking bonds. Just doing that, those basics, it is, it is very hard. Mm-hmm. 
So I've switched horses, and this is in the middle of doing a PhD. <laughs> Maybe not always the best thing to do. But the, the conclusions of the PhD are, this is an, a, a, an intractable problem in computing. This is just too hard to do. You could go into a lab in chemistry and build little little vesicles, little little hollow shapes of um, made out of lipid, made out of fats, and watch them move around. You can inject things into them. You could have them. Stuff will go through their walls. They're they're like simple cells, but they're nowhere near biological. People have been doing that for a hundred years. That's hard too. Are you going to get the origin of life by doing it in chemistry? Possibly not. It's just too hard of a problem. There is a, a middle way, and the middle way is to say, let's create a toy universe. And this concept came from Freeman Dyson, who I went to see. I, I occasionally visit the institute in Princeton where he is working. I came to see him a couple of times, and he talked about toy universes. Universes that are have a physics, they're invented, they don't do every little thing that the real universe does, but they have just enough juice, just enough physics, so that uh, stuff can happen that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So what I'm now doing is designing a toy universe that would have enough juice to show in a, in a toy life form uh, that if you simulated it on computers of today up to t- 2050, you might get an artificial origin of life happening inside them. Now, if you if you get that happening, and of course, who will fund such a thing? There isn't many commercial spin-offs of this. And but uh, if you have that happen, then that's a fundamental thing for the future of human beings and human civilization, because it also goes down to you are responsible. I.e., you're here not because something put you here and fabricated you and guided the evolution and created the whole planet. It's an emergent phenomenon, and so are you. And you are an ongoing story, and the story is written in your genes, but it's also written in your mind. And and you have responsibility for this amazing emergent phenomena. You're perhaps one of the greatest outputs of it, and the reason the planet went through all the trouble. You're an accident, you know, as Stephen Jay Gould or Richard Dawkins would say, we're not you know, the apes were going extinct. People don't know this, but I mean <clears throat> The great apes, uh, regardless of whether humans had emerged off the plains of Africa, were going extinct. Why? Because the rainforest, the forests were drying up due to climate change, and this we're talking two, three million years ago in Africa. But also the the arrival of the great competitor, monkeys, troops of monkeys. Think of them like a colonial insect group. Monkeys are. They have smaller brains, they're faster moving, they have guards, they have foragers, they have soldiers, they, they have this whole societal structure, they're like an ant colony or bee, a beehive. If monkeys moved into the area, they're going to get every piece of food. And they're fast. And they're in, an indefensible uh, power, these troops of monkeys. So here you have highland gorillas. They come along, they find, they find a, a banana tree. What they do is they sit there for several days. They eat the, they eat the tree. I mean, they eat the bananas, but they also consume the tree. I mean, they're, they're herbivores. They're vegetarians. They'll consume the entire tree and they'll crunch everything down there. Incisors it must be the most impressive things to work on if you were a dentist. But, they, but they're slow. And they take a long time to create their young. They're long-lived, but their bodies are big. Their brains are big. They're, they're costly to maintain. If a monkey got to that banana plantation first, or that banana tree there, it wouldn't be there. You know, the, the high-value foods would be gone. The bananas would be gone. So the great ape populations were declining and declining and declining. And we were, we were headed out. So if we can't get on our high horse here. We, we're an accident, in a sense, that we made it. We slipped through. We slipped through. Somehow we slipped through. So... The, the miracle of, if you look in the, the, the writing in your genes, that coding, there are fragments of your gene that go back unaltered to the earliest microorganisms that had genetic codes in the early oceans. And you're talking two, three, you know, four billion years ago. 
And those codes outlasted star systems, whole star systems. They're so robust. It's such a freaky property. And your ancestors, you are a line based on a line of successful ancestors that lived long enough to reproduce. And that single-celled thing in that ocean is yours. It belongs to you. That pakaya that has the little notochord backbone, six, you know, 535 million years in the Burgess Shale that's swimming along and eating garbage at the bottom of the ocean, that's your personal ancestor. That is you. And all the way up through the, the thing that crawled on land that had, had the lung, all of them belong to you. They're your lineage, and they're a unique lineage. You know, we share common ancestors, but they're unique. One of them ate an insect and managed to get enough energy to, to reproduce at one point. That's a unique pathway to you. That insect was, was eaten. So the miracle upon... You don't need religion for miracles. The fact that you exist, and all this exists, is stacked upon miracles, turtles all the way down. So if we grok that, we don't need any religious stories anymore. We grok that and you look into that chasm of improbability and of, of miraculous survival and innovation. You just stand there in awe and you look out into the universe and you say, we're rare, we're astoundingly rare. We're now seeing exoplanets and we're seeing that many of the exosolar systems have hot giants. They have like big Jupiters orbiting close in. When you think of it, you, you slap your head and say, but of course, if I was a solar system and I was forming, I'd have like one or two stars. And if I had just one star, say for instance, and I had a big accretion disk of material, the big hot things would kind of get like most of the goodies and they'd be close in because the accretion disk is getting fatter as it gets close to the star that's forming. Of course, the Jupiters and Saturns would be close in. They'd be boilingly hot. And then I, yeah get a few rocky planets further out. Well, what is that solar system for a, a living space? How comfortable is it? It ain't, it ain't. Because you've suddenly got, you know, you're way out here. You're in the cold and you've got this hot Jupiter that's perturbing your orbit and your orbit is all strange and, and oceans may be liquid for a period of time and then freeze and then boil off and it's not happy. So our solar system, and of course you're exposed to stuff coming in, our solar system's river inverted. Circular orbits, a stable star, Jupiter's and Saturn's on the outside, they're vacuuming up all the hazardous material. They're cold. They're protecting us. We have a giant outsized moon that was probably formed by a collision. It's protecting us. We're in a stable orbit around a stable star. That is a freakishly rare solar system. That is a real special one. And so we're now looking... We look down to our genes and thinking, how on earth? And then we look up and say, wow, there are so few of these, you know, of our type of, of setup. And then that, if that doesn't give you a sense of, of uh, specialness or responsibility or lack of specialness, you know, what, what, what would? No religion will give that to you. No product will give that to you. So it's looking straight into these astounding realities know, unfettered. And scientists are, are getting better at telling the story, but truthfully it's it's the journalists and the people in between that are telling this story and making the computer animations and making the poetry and, and telling that story and that that are giving people the look through this door this window. And, and and it's a window but it's also a door because when you look through that it's like the fellow who went to the Giza plateau he went there uh, in the early 70s. There was, a, there was a researcher who started out being part of a cult that believed that the pyramids were built by UFO aliens. So he was funded to go there. He went there, and then he got connected with the Egyptian antiquities people, and real excavation got completely fascinated by the reality of this dig, went back to the States, got a PhD in archaeology, and has been working there on the Giza Plateau for 20 years, and they've now excavated the city of the artisans that built the pyramids. And so we, we were at a conference and he showed, archaeologists still use slides, right? <laughs> Slide projectors, very high resolution. It's a good medium, like no PowerPoint. And he showed a slide after slide of this cityscape, which was much better laid out than modern day Cairo. He showed an overlay of 
this beautifully laid out city and then modern Cairo coming up to it with all this labyrinthian streets. And there was the, the big bakery to make the, the meals in these conical baking horns for these people. There's a clinic. There's, you know, housing. And he, the interesting thing is, he, so of course he said, the cult never gave me any of this. This is so much more profoundly interesting than, than this, what came out of some guy's imagination. The reality is so much more mind-blowingly interesting. And we've discovered that the pyramids were not made by slaves. That's another invention of somebody. They were made by competing gangs. They, they call themselves gangs. We find their graffiti everywhere. So these people competed from villages to be part of these work crews because it was in high privilege. And then they would compete on construction. And we would find in the shaft in the Great Pyramid uh, writing in Egyptian that said, the drunken friends of Khufu have reached this point first. And that was a note that we're winning. <laughs> you know, it's season 32 <laughs> and we built up to this point. And this thing was a national sport. It was a pastime. It was a great project. It was a privilege to be a part of it. So then you look at the pyramids with this whole different reality. Like These things were, these things meant a lot. People cared about this. They really cared about it. So facing reality is the ultimate in beneficial trip. And I think that that is part of this crescendo. If the crescendo can throw off all these old, crusty, irrelevant, uh, produced usually by a small group of people, things, and allow us to look directly into reality uh, without fear and unfettered, just in the state of awe, um, uninterpreted, uh, that's transforming. That's a civilization transformer. Definitely, definitely. There you go. Um, well, I, 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 there's one thing uh, that piques my interest, too, and you're talking about just how, how much uh, computation power and time and dedication it takes to try and just find one minute time of piece of space-time that actually exists, and or this room is full of it, you know, mm -hmm. everywhere in the universe you find it. it did that give you some some new reverence for nature and, and reality, or, or can yeah the, the the discovery of the of the incredible impotence of of our technology of our computing technology, you know I collect old computers, so I have the Digibarn Computer Museum. We saw the Cray One supercomputer sitting there, and and you know if you're brought up in this culture, you sort of you get this into this delusional state, but it's a wonderful, happy state that all things are possible with digital computation. And you're, if you're in virtual worlds or World of Warcraft, or whatever, it's like an, a compelling reality. You think, yeah, reality can be represented in here, but it's a cardboard cutout. It's really a cardboard cutout compared to what is going on in, in nature. And so, but it's a useful cardboard cutout. But there are those who then extend it infinitely and, you know, claim it is the savior of all. But in fact, it's a fragile, um, error-ridden, handmade technology. Um, and previous technologies, the technology of, of steam railways and steam engines in the 19th century, people held great belief for those. I mean, they, they felt you could create an intelligent speaking being out of pistons and cogs and gears. I mean, this is a Victorian idea, the Frankenstein idea, in a sense, came from this. And we look back and think, how absurd. You know, oh, that's just completely absurd. But people in the deep 21st century that look back at us, and and they, they had such belief in this stuff. I predict that if uh, an alien spacecraft comes into orbit, it will come into orbit, it'll be this gigantic like steam engine thing with cogs and wheels is huge. They'll look at our space station and they say, ah, using digital technology, you'll never get to the stars with that. <laughs> this is how we get big, clunky, reliable, million-year warranty parts. <laughs> digital technology, fragile, quick and dirty, you know, inflexible. It's, it's basically a kindergartner's technology. Software is a kindergarten technology compared to how nature is made. You know, it's, it's Fisher-Price. It's a Fisher-Price uh, 
version of, of, of reality. But yet, I mean, of course, it's a it's a usable, valuable tool. It's something we, you know we, we benefits us greatly in some regard. I, I think it's just that distinction about being getting carried away with it being greater than reality and and the spectacle creating the bubble around you from what really is there. Is that? Yeah, what you'll see um, as we get hologram. I mean, <clears throat> holodecks in our homes and people really immersed in virtual worlds, and especially when augmented reality kicks in, when you've got not just on your smartphone and you're looking at it and it's showing you the, the, the constellations in the sky, but it, it's glasses or it's, you know, retinal displays that are giving you data floating all over everything. You know, a great book is uh, Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End. It's about San Diego in about 2030, and it's when augmented reality has really kicked in. and The world is filled with objects and creatures and data, and, and you're in that space. But AR is interesting in that AR is about mapping onto the real world. So to try to find this farm, you're you're driving along and it's it's showing you floating signs that are saying turn left in 29 seconds or something. I mean that that's actually useful. And if you were looking at a dandelion, you know it's pulling out, it's doing a NASA kind of zoom camera and pulling out the finest detail on the petal or the the little yellow part of the nanoline and it's showing you the pollen. And then the pollen's getting big and and then there's a leg comes and it sweeps the pollen off and it's a it's a bee that is that is taken and the, the leg hairs fit perfectly with that pollen and you think, Wow, you know, and you're just blown away. So AR maybe is a gateway into this transformation of, of thought. Mm-hmm. So it it takes you away from the virtual world, which is really quite off there and you forget to eat and sleep and you pass out on your keyboard to joining you back to the to the real letting you see things you couldn't see before except through imagination now of course if people lose the ability to have imagination we have a problem but uh you know i'm not afraid of that that next wave i think i was a pioneer of virtual worlds but i always saw them as the keystone cops you know the keystone cops movie they're they're running fast through the streets and there's no sound and they're, they're, they basically fit these short films into the length of the reel that they could get in a theater at the time. And this is a hundred years ago. Now, of course, we see them sped up and fast and the cars are moving fast because we're playing them at the wrong frame rate. But we play them at that frame rate because it's more fun. <laughs> and maybe the stories aren't that interesting, so it's better to get through them quickly. But the Keystone Cops, I mean, the virtual worlds and avatar spaces and multiplayer games of now are the Keystone Cops of what virtual worlds will be, you know, in, in 20 or 30 years through AR and big home holodecks and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's uh, it's just it's just bizarre to think of how the, this will all play out, you know, and how and how and, and technology's role in our in our in the course of our the civilization. Will we re- revert back without needing much of, of any of it and, and taking out yeah. little pieces of it, or will it really blossom into something that that really excels? Right. I think you've you've found the answer on in your last year of filmmaking, which is that you've what you've probably divined out of it is that you need and you said this before you need to have people that are have one foot in the world who are doing things in society or growing things helping people creating art whatever and then one foot in this very driven up crescendo of high tech and of interaction engagement and no fear and and it's the people that are doing that that are going to be the most effective in in showing us the future yeah, yeah, no, definitely. That's, that's a good point. And that, and that, the people who are allowing themselves to be dominated by pessimism, fear, doom, uh, are probably marginalizing their mind and their their power. Um, but the people that are completely sold over on the technology and that uh, are also uh, deluding themselves. So there's some kind of in between. There's a wisdom that says, believe, but be realistic. And another one that's uh, part of it says, be open to the bad news, but not become the bad news. Mm-hmm. And there might be another sense that say, fear for the earth, 
but help a part of the earth uh, be better or be well or be healed. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like that in between, and in some sense, um, I think t- to a degree, Americans like to be in one extreme or the other. They feel like it's fake if they're not 100% on in the Tea Party or 100% in Amy Goodman's court or 100%, you know, in in the conspiracy of chemtrails. They have to be 100% or they're somehow not real. And I think that that's a problem. When you raise in Canada, you know, Canadians are very skeptical about things and Canadians pride themselves, I think, on seeing other points of view, being able to say, we invented the ombudsperson. <clears throat> we invented a lot of the ideas of arbitration, you know, formal positions of helping uh, sides determine. Because Canada is a confederation. Canada is made up of a, an agreement between mostly drunken gentlemen, you know, in, in the 19th century with their flasks. But it was an agreement that it wasn't forged through war or conflict or revolution. It was forged by saying, you know what, we have to make a whole lot of compromises. We have to hire a bloody American to build our railway. <laughs> to, but eat crow. We don't have anybody who has this skill. Bring them up because we don't have the railway. We have to keep going down south to ship ourselves across the other part of our nation. This isn't going to work. So hire the best person you can. Um, and we need to accommodate native peoples, aboriginal peoples. We need to accommodate the cultures that are here. French Canadians, immigrants are coming in accommodate them in a different way because we need the strength of their communities. We don't have a melting pot here. It's not enough of us really to build a big empire or big army. So we don't do armies. We don't really do our own defense. And we're always asked to fight in other people's wars anyway. So Canada was this huge set of measured compromises. And as a result, people are trained, I think, to sort of listen to something and say, hmm, I'll take that under consideration. Or... But there's another point of view, you know. Uh, so that's our cultural heritage. Whereas, for some reason, Americans have to be, if they're seen to be saying, I'm, I, could, I could give up my own view, then they're seen to be weak or, or vacillating or traitor to the cause. And, and that's a problem. And the United States, specifically, is going to have to learn about being much more sophisticated in, in seeing things. And Americans who live abroad tend to get that sophistication. Americans that are raised on the media, corporate culture, and the mythologies of this country tend to not. They tend to become, you know, you have to be a believer in something. You can't, you can't say the other side's partially right, too. Because then you're, you know, and, and so they're, they're really pigeonholing themselves. And that, that's, I think, where the growing up phase of the United States could and should happen is to recognize that, that that's a very unsophisticated way to live, is to believe in a cause to all ends. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Huh, well, there was uh, quite a lot to think about in the conversation that we just listened to. But for me, the one thing that stood out most clearly was when Bruce said, and I quote, You're here not because something put you here and fabricated you and guided the evolution and created the whole planet. It is an emergent phenomena, and so are you. And you are an ongoing story, and the story is written in your genes, but it is also written in your mind. And you have responsibility for this amazing emergent phenomena. Well, I sure like that, and uh, evidence of this amazing emergent phenomena that is our fellow saloners are the questions that are slowly coming in for the ongoing discussions we plan to have in our Global Trialogue podcasts. I just spoke with Bruce yesterday, and uh, he told me how pleased he is with the quality of the questions that he's been receiving. And uh, once he gets his Ph.D. thesis behind him, which he's working on feverishly right now, we'll uh, be hearing the first of these interactive podcasts. So, if you want to add your voice to the mix, just send your questions to bruce at damer.com and uh, click on the contact link at the bottom of that page. That's d-a-m-e-r dot com. Or uh, through the Psychedelic Salon Forum over at thegrowreport.com. 
uh, either of those places will get your questions to Bruce. And uh, the ones that are selected uh, for him to uh, answer in the forum, we hope that we can get you to actually record the question yourself so we can uh, add your voice to the salon. And uh, in addition to these segments that uh, will be coming your way in the future, we'll also be hearing from our friend Matt Palomary, who is uh, going to conduct a couple of interviews for us in the months ahead. And uh, as for next week's podcast, well, I haven't decided what I'm in the mood for just yet, but uh, there's still a lot of unheard material from the Timothy Leary archive that I haven't gotten to yet, as well as uh, some more tapes of Terrence McKenna lectures that I have yet to digitize. And on top of that, I've just finished digitizing all of the talks from the 2001 and Theobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico. However, uh, <laughs> after some rather harsh criticism about the sound quality of the last talk that I podcast from that series, uh, well, I'll only be playing them if they clean up satisfactorily. But uh, one way or another, I plan on being back next week with yet another podcast from here in the Psychedelic Salon. So... That'll do it for now, and I'll again close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear a little bit about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And if you want a free copy, don't feel bad about doing that. Uh, not all of us have a lot of money right now, so just uh, go to genesisgeneration.us and uh, you'll find the link for the uh, free copy where you don't even have to leave your email address. Uh, you won't be followed up or bugged or anything about it, so... Uh, I hope that you'll take advantage of it if uh, it's something that interests you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>